You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode of Campus Beach. My name is Dinah Jansen, and I'm in the virtual studio today with Brielle Thorson, Master of Applied Science candidate in the Department of Mechanical and Materials Engineering here at Queen's University. Hi, Brielle. Hello, thank you for having me. Welcome, welcome. Okay, everyone, Brielle is also a Student Programs and Outreach Assistant Aboriginal Access to Engineering here at Queen's University and also just announced the winner of the Order of the White Rose Scholarship from Polytechnique Montreal. Congratulations, Brielle. Thank you so much. So Polytechnique created this scholarship as a commemoration to the victims, as well as the wounded, the families, the faculty members, the employees, and the students who were forever affected by the December 6th, 1989 Montreal massacre. White roses have become a symbol of Polytechnique Montreal's commemorative activities to mark this tragedy, and the $30,000 scholarship that uh, Brielle has won is awarded annually by the Polytechnique administration to a woman engineering student who intends to undertake graduate studies in engineering at the master's or PhD levels at the institution of her choice in Canada or elsewhere in the world. So once again, Brielle, this is an outstanding achievement. Congratulations. Uh, wow, the, uh, very outstanding. Now, before we talk about this uh, significant achievement, can you tell us a little bit about your research in mechanical and materials engineering here at Queen's and maybe a little bit about the work that you're doing uh, in Aboriginal access to engineering here at Queen's? Absolutely. Thank you so much for your congratulations again. Uh, so I'm in my first year of my master's here at Queen's and my area of focus is sustainable energy systems for remote Indigenous communities. So currently I'm focused on Northeastern Ontario. Uh, there's multiple remote communities, uh, which means that they're not connected to the North American um, electrical grid. So I'm looking at their energy systems and, you know, kind of looking at how do we move forward from here? Because a lot of these communities are running diesel generators and they don't have access um, in summer months or warm months to the communities. So you're either flying in diesel or driving it in on ice roads in the winter, which isn't the most sustainable um, system for, for the communities. So I'm looking at how can we improve these systems systems, uh, what's currently in place, um, and what's been done before, and how can we move towards, you know, a better future for Indigenous communities, uh, specifically related to energy. Uh, so I'm focused on a couple different areas of that, uh, but one area that I'm interested in right now is the net zero housing for communities. So looking at how can we design net zero plus housing for harsher climates um, mm -hmm. in, in northern Canada. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Well done you. What inspired you to pursue a career in engineering? Well, my father is an engineer, so I was pretty lucky growing up that I always had him there to encourage me, uh, specifically in mathematics and sciences. Uh, we would work on a bunch of different projects together at home. So, you know, he definitely helped me you know, gain my confidence really in the realm of STEM and encouraged me to apply into engineering. 
Um, and then my father actually worked in the energy sector. So I think that I was pretty exposed to energy in Canada. Uh, and then being Indigenous, my family coming from Goodfish Lake, Alberta, I was used to, you know, seeing, I just think the differences in Indigenous communities to non-Indigenous communities of access to, you know, everyday needs, such as water and electricity. Uh, so I think that it was an area that I knew that I could apply the tools and knowledge that I'm using in engineering uh, to issues that I care a lot about. Um, so that's how I kind of got into this uh, area and looking at what the needs are in communities and how can we work together to address these needs uh, while acknowledging that, you know, Indigenous communities have, have been successful, you know, for millennia. So how can we use, you know, some more traditional knowledge into implementing these solutions and how can we, you know, decolonize this space of research? You know, I read a lot of research articles and most oftentimes they're non-Indigenous people doing this work in our communities. So I just feel fortunate to be, you know, an Indigenous person be able to do this research because I think it'll bring a different perspective. Amazing. Thank you. So what do you love most about your learning and research at Queen's? Oh, there's so many things I love most. I'm definitely a big nerd. So I honestly just enjoy being able to do more coursework, which I know sounds kind of funny. Um, I'm currently in convective heat transfer and it's been such an enjoyable course. I really enjoy solving problems. So it's nice not having to like put that aside. Um, but I just enjoy being able to, you know, look and decide where I want to spend my time and where do I want to spend my energy. It's great being able to be in graduate school and my supervisors have given me a great level of freedom. So I'm really able just to look at these problems that I care about and, and decide how do I want to approach this. So I just like the the freedom and the ability, you know, to, to do my own work, really. Fantastic. Yes. So tell us about your recent win of the Order of the White Rose Scholarship. How did you know about this particular scholarship? How did you apply for it? And ultimately, how were you evaluated? Yes, so I received an email from Queens back in the summertime that they were doing a call for applications for the scholarship. And I looked at the scholarship and had three areas uh, that they were focused on. So academics, uh, technical abilities, and social commitments. And I thought that I might, you know, qualify because I've done some work in these spaces. So I was like, I might as well throw my, you know, hat in the pile and see if I can get it. Um, so you have to be, you apply within your own institution where you finished your uh, undergraduate. And then there's an internal competition and then uh, each university then nominates one um, female engineering student to the national competition at uh, Polytechnic Montreal. And then they go through their selection process uh, and then that. So I ended up getting it, and I just feel so uh, grateful and, and honored to be this year's recipient. Fantastic, and congratulations once again. And yes, you did win. Do you know what it was about your application that put yours over the top? Oh, that's a tough question. I think that uh, I hope that what I bring to the table is just a new, I think, a new path forward uh, of vulnerability in STEM. I think that, you know, as, as a woman in STEM, as someone who identifies as female, as an indigenous person, you know, we're, we don't really see ourselves represented, you know, that much. So, you know, it's just crazy to be this year's recipient and the first indigenous recipient of this award. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know that there will be many more to come after me. 
Okay, so following up on that, as uh, as you're aware too, Queen's Engineering Dean Kevin Deluzio recently told the Queen's Gazette that you yourself have overcome a number of obstacles to not only thrive in engineering, but become an inspiration to young women and Indigenous youth. Uh, he further stated that it is uh, particularly important to celebrate and support the accomplishments of young engineers who face systemic challenges in both our schools and the profession. And you've just touched on this, but can you remind us a little more of some of the challenges that women, or particularly Indigenous women, such as yourself, face in your discipline? Yeah, so I didn't have the most positive experience over my past four years here at Queen's. And, and I talk about that because I think it's important to create space for, for different narratives. You know, so often I hear from people that, you know, university was the best experience of their life. And for mm -hmm. me, it really wasn't. You know, I was sexually assaulted in my first year here at Queens. So I never had, you know, a day on this campus where I wasn't living with that. And that's why it's really important to me that we have conversations about violence against women on campus and particularly violence against indigenous women. Indigenous women experience rates of violence three to six times the national average of non-indigenous women. Mm -hmm. And those numbers are disturbing, but also, you know, we're so much more than numbers and statistics. Hey, there's pe real people behind these stories, which is why it's important for me that I share my story because it's so easy to look at these numbers and kind of lose sight of what that means. You know, that one in five women will be sexually assaulted in university. So when I'm sitting in my classrooms, you know, there's 200 students. That, that's a significant number of students that could be going through a traumatic and life altering event. Mm -hmm. So how can we move forward? How can we create systems that are in place to better support survivors or victims? And how can we disarm these systems that enable this violence to occur? So that's why I'm you know, very fortunate to be in this position of privilege to be able to talk about my experiences and hopefully shed some light um, you know, onto these you know, sad realities of what occurs on our campus. Well, you're a survivor. You're certainly an accomplished young scholar, and uh, you're going to be moving forward, it looks like, with a, quite an illustrious career, and now with the help of this uh, quite prestigious scholarship. And your story is, as uh, Dean Deluzio intimated, uh, quite inspiring. Do you think that this new scholarship and the work that you've done will inspire other women after you, and how so? I hope that it'll inspire, you know, women after me, because I've been inspired by the woman before me. Mm -hmm. You know, I only really felt comfortable, you know, sharing my story because of the women who have come before me and have taught me how to use my voice so I hope that, you know, in sharing my story that I can create space for other people that might be experiencing the same thing, you know, to, if that you feel comfortable to share your story and at least at the minimum, you know, create this space where people have to be confronted with these uncomfortable realities because uh, it's hard and it's taxing, you know, being someone who's, who's had this occur to you to have to speak up about it. Um, but, you know, I take that as a privilege that I'm in a position to be able to speak about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you've just won this uh, very prestigious scholarship, again, uh, from Polytechnique Montreal in memoriam for the victims of the December 6th, 1989 Montreal massacre of a number of women uh, who were tragically killed for the very reason that they were women in engineering. Have times changed in your opinion? 
but think that you know what happened in 1989 was one of the largest demonstrations of, of violence against women that we've had in Canada. That was one of our largest mass shootings that we had until you know earlier this year. So you know, although I want to say that we've made progress because we've not seen a similar you know event of this extremity, I think that we do have a lot more progress to make. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking to Michelle Thibaudet and she was saying that, you know, when she went to university, there was only three women, uh, including herself. And now that Apical Polytechnique, they have thousands. Mm-hmm. So we have made progress in representation. Absolutely. Um, you know, our goal as engineers is for 30 and 30. So to have 30% of practicing engineers be women come 2030. When you think about that, that is a great goal because we're not there yet. But then at the same time, if you take a step back and you realize that we're hoping to have you know, three women in a room of 10 engineers come 2030, 10 years from now, it's like, are we moving fast enough? Are we making fast enough progress? Mm-hmm. And I would have to say no. Like, you know, we still have a far ways to go at, in terms of, you know, really reaching equality in engineering, but representation is only one piece. I think ensuring that STEM is a safe space for women and for people with different gender identifications is, is still an ongoing battle. Okay. Are there other reasons why women are uh, less represented in engineering? Why are the numbers still comparatively low between men and women in STEM? I think that a lot of this comes back to toxic gender norms. You know, these gender norms, you know, on the basis that, you know, biological sex determines one's interest and strengths. And I think it often discourages, you know, those who identify as female to pursue STEM careers. Uh, you know, from a young age, if you think about these gender norms that society and Western society specifically has constructed, you know, young girls are taught that you need to like pink and play with the dolls and you know, do a variety of other tasks like that. And then younger boys are given blue and they're given tractors and Lego to play with. And I think that has an impact on how you perceive the world. You know, if you're a little boy and they're telling you go build things with your Lego, but if you're a girl, all you can do is take care of your dolls. You know, this has impact. And that's not to say that there's nothing wrong with that if that's how, what your interests are, but we shouldn't be pushing this on children. And I think that that you know, creates this culture of where women are less likely to enter into STEM because you've been told your whole life that this isn't the space for you, your interests don't line up. So I think that if we can start to deconstruct gender norms and get away from this need to have this gender binary um, and the toxicity that that comes with, that we will move towards a brighter future, I think, in STEM of having greater diversity. Okay, so what happens next for you, Brielle, in your research and even your career path? Where are you going from here? I think I'm starting to realize that I have more power than I have ever felt before. And and I take that with a great privilege. I've been contacted by some great companies. Um, You know, I've been saying that my goal is to work for a company that prioritizes social and environmental good above all else. And I'm really hoping and I'm seeing, I think, this, this come true for me that that will be in my future um, and working with Indigenous communities in Canada to, to move towards energy sovereignty and improve the living conditions of, of our communities um, because there's drastic need um, you know, for action in our communities. And I just hope I can be a part of that. Thank you so much. Anything else you'd like to add, maybe about December 6th, maybe about women in engineering? anything. 
I would just say to, you know, women in engineering or to girls considering going into engineering, that this is the place for you. And although, you know, we face obstacles and discrimination and violence, that if we stand together, we're so strong. And it is a place for us. And STEM is a place for people with diverse backgrounds and lived experiences. And we just need to continue to push that forward because like I said, I think we're so much stronger together and the more we support one another, I think the better our future will be. Mm-hmm. And much of our focus has, of course, been on women in engineering, but you are the student programs and outreach assistant for Aboriginal access to engineering as well. Do you have any words to add uh, about Indigenous representation in engineering and the applied sciences? Yeah, I think that, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, to increase the number of Indigenous peoples uh, in STEM. But that comes with, I think, non-Indigenous peoples ensuring that it's a safe space for for Indigenous people in STEM. In Canada, Indigenous people make up, you know, just about 5% of the population of what we now call Canada. But students only, Indigenous students only make up 1% uh, of engineering students in Canada. So we're definitely underrepresented but that's not because of Indigenous peoples, it's because of the systemic barriers that we face in entering STEM. So I'd say to, especially the non-Indigenous students here studying at Queen's, to ensure that you're creating space for Indigenous students on this campus and, you know, looking at what is your role to participate in, in reconciliation and decolonization, and how are we making our classrooms a safe place? You know, are we moving towards the future or are we stuck you know, in the system of of oppression. Okay. Thank you very much, Brielle, for that and for chatting with us today, not only about uh, your award, the Order of the White Rose Scholarship from Polytechnique Montreal, but also talking to us today about uh, some of the challenges uh, that women and Indigenous peoples uh, encounter uh, when trying to make their way through academia and finding careers in engineering. So thank you. We really do appreciate your time. And once again, a hearty congratulations on your win with, of the scholarship. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you taking the time to have me here today. Hello everyone, welcome to another segment of The Scoop and today we are talking about MA, a community celebration of vocal arts. And when we think of the vocal arts, we tend to think of singing, the sonically pleasing, broadly accessible and widely popular sounds that vocalists make. But what about other vocal arts and practices to which some dedicate themselves with all of the passion and hard work of the most celebrated singers? Our bird calls and auctioneering, ventriloquism and sound healing, somehow the products of a lesser commitment to craft? Perhaps we can find answers on November 12th, the Kingston Frontenac Public Library, King Con, and the Tone Deaf Festival are co-presenting Georgia Weber's 
immersive concert series, Ma, which celebrates the human voice in all its permutations. Often blurring the roles of audience and performer, Ma, a community celebration of the vocal arts, brings together an array of vocalists to perform and reflect on their vocal arts. And at this Kingston edition of Ma, we will hear from local artists like Nick Ewan. Nick, a vocal artist, actor and host of CFRC's Shed Progressions, Mondays at 11 p.m., is here in the virtual studio with me. Plug, 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 plug. Welcome, Nick. Why, thank you. <laughs> delight to be here. It's a delight to be here. And as we were saying, uh, get to, I finally get to see you in person. It's been, I don't think I've actually seen you in person in almost a year. Yeah, it has been just about a year, hasn't it? And we're at CFRC. It, it's, yes, pandemic times, folks, pandemic times. Strange times indeed. Indeed. So uh, strange times, but kind of exciting times, because uh, we've got some pretty fun stuff to talk about. We're going to be talking yeah. about Ma, this uh, really cool art, vocal art celebration. But Nick, so maybe you can draw this out for me. When I'm thinking of the word Ma, I'm actually thinking of words like, that remind me of, or thinking about the word reminding me of things like Cujo and Jaws and Death and gnarliness. But now I'm thinking actually Ma might be something a little bit different and possibly friendlier. Can you tell us about Ma? a community celebration of the vocal arts. What is this festival? I think that you were actually better at explaining it than I was. <laughs> Rawr. Not, not, the, <laughs> not the big jaws, dun, 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 but just the idea of celebrating all these different styles of art that people are able to do with their vocal cords, with their mouth, with any means that they have to make sound, that passion that they pursue it with. Once again, full disclosure, I'm terrible at explaining things. I get nervous when put on the spot, and I know I'm supposed to be an actor. I'm supposed to be over that. But We didn't prescribe you any lines to rehearse, however. <laughs> and that's the thing. As an actor, I like knowing what I'm supposed to do next. I like structure and having the script in front of me and knowing, okay, this is what I'm going to say. This is how they're going to respond. I love that. Off the cuff, it's exhilarating and exciting, but also most of the time I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, so Nick, you're, you are a vocal artist and an actor. Tell us about your background in, in theater and vocal arts. Well, admittedly, when I was first getting, admittedly for the longest time, I didn't think of myself as an actor. I was the little tiny stage fright plagued child who was afraid of everything and everyone, overly sensitive. I did not see myself as an actor, but funny enough, that all kind of went away when I got to college. And for the first time, one of my professors heard my voice and he said, and Tom Brennan, who was my professor, he is a veteran of the broadcasting industry. He was at CKWS and everything. So when he said that I should seriously consider refining my voice and taking up voice work as a career possibility that is not something that is said lightly or taken lightly so mm -hmm. I actually in spite of my stage fright in spite of my nervousness and all that I went and started looking into it thinking of what I could do to refine my voice to learn how to act and it was an interview that one of my favorite voice actors Troy Baker he said that Getting into radio, doing theater, doing improv, these are great ways to kind of build your foundation as an actor. And so 
that's what I started doing. And let's be honest, the first few times I tried to audition, I struck out. I struck out horribly. I had a string of failures from, let's see, I started auditioning in 2013 all the way to the end of 2014, like a whole year of rejection. And the thing is, that's actually, that's actually kind of normal mm-hmm. as an actor. You, 10% is a number that I've heard brought up. And 10% is the number of successful auditions that the best actors in the business actually get. So some of the big names in acting, voice acting, voiceover, they only get 10% of every audition that they ever do. So they strike out 90% of the time. So rejection is just a part of the business and being Mm -hmm. able to persevere through that, keep your passion determines whether or not you'll, well, it's one of the big factors in determining if acting is something that's for you. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, at the end of 2014, I got my first, I got my first part. It was a, it was a fairly small part in Hamlet, but there was just something about being on stage, about about the energy of being able to play off of my fellow actors, of basically being given the opportunity to play a really fun character, put my own twist, and as my director so eloquently put it, go full Nick Cage. I was hooked. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... With Ma, what is it about the community celebration of vocal arts that inspired you to participate? Well, interestingly enough, it was actually something that a friend of mine told me about back in 2019, John Sanfilippo, who is the proprietor of Titan Sound. He was actually the person who told me about this and said and got me in touch with the with the organizers. And I've I've had a chance to meet with him, talk with him, and even practice voice work with him. And there was one technique of mine that he was really interested in that kind of made him consider me for this. And it was my study of false chord. What is false chord? I'm intrigued. False chord is actually the name given to the vestibular fold, which is basically that part of your the part of your larynx that kind of covers your airway when you're eating or drinking so that food doesn't go down the wrong way. Uh-huh. And as I have plenty of experience on, sometimes it doesn't quite work as intended. And I'm going to te- and I'm going to test fate with that theory right now by drinking this water. Mm-hmm. But how it, how false cord works usually is when you're clearing your throat or when you're, or when you don't want to actually inhale food or drink, it covers up that part, it covers up that part of your airway. And sorry, I kind of, I said it twice now, but I'm just trying to kind of find my place in my mm-hmm. sentence. But, <clears throat> and that was an example of it right there. It also creates this very interesting sound when, a, when you, how do I say this? It can also create some very interesting vocal sounds. So for example, <clears throat> right there, you kind of heard that hum, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and it took me a long time to kind of learn this the hard way. There are certain singing techniques that actually incorporate false chord, like, for example, throat singing. And that's something that has fascinated me for the longest time. And 
the reason I just I figured out Fall's chord is because I was interested in learning exactly how that worked. And so, once again, I learned it the hard way. I eventually figured out how to use Fall's chord to do Cargura style tooth and throat singing to a degree. Wow. Can you give us a tiny taste and demonstration of what that might sound like? Certainly. I can kind of I can kind of lead up to it. So when I was first when I was first practicing it, it sounded like this. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that. Mm-hmm. But after a while I figured out how to refine it. So it sounded a bit more like this. Kind of like that. Wow. It does have a, um, a very much a throat singing element to it. Uh, well, thank you for the sneak peek on the performance that you'll be giving uh, for MA, a community celebration of the vocal arts, which is happening on December 12th. So what's happening at this event? What can audiences expect? We'll get to uh, obviously see your performance uh, virtually, of course, but what else is happening? I think, as you said, there was going to be all manner of incredible talents. So sound healers, beatboxers, impressionists. I think there was even something about an auctioneer. Because, as you said, it's all about a showcase of the vocal arts, about how people have figured out how to use their voices for something incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you again, Nick. We really do appreciate your time. And yes, folks, don't forget to tune in 11 o'clock every Monday night to Shed Progressions for some awesome jazz music with Nick Ewan every week. Again, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 